You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about teen driving. Joining me is Dr. Flora Copeland-Winston, an internationally recognized, board-certified practicing pediatrician, doctorally trained engineer, public health researcher, and scientific director of the Center for Injury Research and Prevention at CHOP scientific director of the Center for Injury Research and Prevention at CHOP, and professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Somehow she still found time to sit down and talk to me about teen driving safety and how pediatricians play an important role in preventing teen crashes through counseling and education. So thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's get right into it and talk about motor vehicle crashes are the leading cause of death for U.S. teens. So what factors make teen drivers most at risk for crashes? I have to just say that there are two key points. It's inexperience Mm -hmm. and inadequate skills for the early teens. As it moves further on, as they get older, then you start getting into the risky driving behaviors. Mm -hmm. But we really need to focus on those first six months, maybe even the first three months of independent driving, Mm -hmm. because that's when inexperience and inadequate skills really cause havoc. Mm -hmm. And that's why the teens have these very high crash rates. Mm -hmm. Which is sort of tricky because the only way you get experience is by doing it. But by doing it, you're putting yourself at risk. Right. And that's actually an important point. It's where the wisdom of what we call graduated driver licensing laws come Mm -hmm. in. Because what they're trying to do is to give you that experience under safe conditions. That's the whole point behind it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of parents think it's, you know, unnecessary, it's Mm -hmm. annoying, I want to just give my kid a license, they know how to steer the car. But the reality is, without that experience, Mm -hmm. you can't learn any skill. Right. You know, think about how many hours you've played soccer with your kid to get them to be able to get a goal or... Think about how many hours you've um, practiced piano to get them to be able to do trills. Right. Well, this is yet another skill, Mm -hmm. and it requires that experience. Mm -hmm. Now, what about distraction? Because we hear about that a lot in the news. So why is this particularly important for teens? Well, because they don't have the adequate skills. Mm -hmm. So in order for you to uh, properly anticipate, recognize, and respond to hazards on the road, Mm -hmm. you have, it takes you some time. Mm -hmm. And if you're distracted, whether that's because you're thinking about something else, your eyes are off the road, or actually your hands and eyes and thinking about it, Mm -hmm. you know, all of them, which happens with phones, particularly texting, Mm -hmm. you're minimizing that window because you have to switch back into the driving task. Mm -hmm. when you look up from your phone, Mm -hmm. right? It's something that your brain has to do. And then once you're actually looking out on the road, what's happening there is that you have to be able to scan far ahead to the sides and look for hazards. Mm -hmm. And if your eye is on your phone and not out there, then you're not able to do this. This is bad for anybody. But now imagine if you're a teen without experience. Mm -hmm. Now what the problem is, is now the teen has to, oh, should I care about that? Is that important? What, right. There's a lot of trial and error right. that's happening. 
That happens with all adolescents. So we as experienced drivers can count on our years of experience to know that this distraction or this potential risk on the road is something that we've seen before and we know how to respond to it? Is that what you mean? So yes. I think teens may be seeing it for the first time and they're not as good about navigating it? They may not even recognize it, right? And so then they get further into a situation where they have to put in place emergency driving behaviors that they have never practiced. Right. They don't know, right? So um, some of the things we find in our research are that teens recognize hazards later. Mm -hmm. They break at half the brake pressure of adults in emergency situations. They put themselves, all of these things, when you're talking about something that's happening over the course of seconds, right. every one of these things counts. And in fact, if your eyes are off the road as an, as a, an adult driver, two out of six seconds, mm -hmm. you've dramatically increased your risk of crashes. Mm. But now if you have a teen right. whose eyes are off the road, they're not going to be able to switch back into that driving task so quickly and know what they're looking at. And if they do see something when they first look up, mm -hmm. they're not going to be really well-versed in how to respond. Right. And this all goes back to inadequate skills and inexperience. Mm -hmm. And you add things like distraction, drinking, anything like that, it's much worse with an adolescent. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that they need practice. So do driving simulators help us predict when a teen is ready to drive? Well, so that's a really, um, that's a good question about where simulators come in. So uh, I have to disclose that I am a co-founder of a spin-out company, mm -hmm. um, the Diagnostic Driving, and its whole purpose was to use simulators to enhance our ability to know who is skilled or not skilled with driving. Mm -hmm. That's really what it's all about. Who's a safe right. driver and who's not? Right. Because if you, um, so I really do think that simulators play a very important role because they can safely expose teens or anybody mm -hmm. to a variety of the most common serious crash scenarios mm -hmm. and see what, if, what do you do to prepare for that? Mm -hmm. Do you scan well? Do you respond well? Simulators are fabulous for mm -hmm. doing that. Right. And so I think that really actually for assessment, this is going to be a breakthrough, mm -hmm. again, with full disclosure. Right. Because the on-road exam is necessarily limited because of safety. Mm -hmm. So in fact, because of safety as well as time. Right. But let's just go with the safety part. It has to be on low-risk roads and low-risk situations right. because there's an evaluator next right. to the driver, right? <laughs> and right. they have to go out with anybody who comes in. Right. So we're really fortunate that we're starting, we're working on a pilot. We've been working on it since... Um, uh, 2017 with the state of Ohio, mm -hmm. where our simulated assessment, it's the virtual driving test that we use, mm -hmm. is actually in licensing centers in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And we're finding it's very accurate in predicting who's going to pass or fail their own road exam. Wow. And it also gives the insights about what are your areas where you're not good enough. Are right. you not good enough in speed management, in scanning, mm -hmm. where they are? So that's why I call it diagnostic driving. Mm -hmm. Driving's not a black box. Right. We know what a safer and unsafe driver is. Mm -hmm. we, we get it. We know what the most common serious crash scenarios are. We're just not doing anything about it. Right. So this now opens it up and gives us a way to, to do something about it. So yes, I think simulators are great for assessment. Mm -hmm. And for teens practicing as well? So can they practice before they take their driving test on a simulator? Well, so no, here's the issue. I am less excited, although I think there's potential for it, for current use of simulators in training. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because I, I don't see great evidence 
that it actually improves outcomes. Okay. I haven't seen randomized trials. I haven't seen any of that. Mm -hmm. And there actually, um, there actually is nothing that can replace, I know it's a lot of hours and mm -hmm. everybody's busy with after-school activities, mm -hmm. but there is nothing that can replace the parent practice. Mm -hmm. And there's really honestly nothing that can truly replace having a good instructor teach your teen the skills that they need to learn. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what I worry about with simulators is that families will put a kid on a simulator, they may not be taking it seriously, mm -hmm. you know, at a school. Right. And, like that's, and, and that could then count towards their practice hours. Right. As it is in Pennsylvania, for example, it only requires 65 practice hours. Mm -hmm. Think how many hours you've played soccer with your kid. Right. Way more than 65, right? And so if some of those hours start being on the simulator, mm -hmm. I really worry. Right. So I, I think there's potential for the mm -hmm. simulator to help with all of this, but not in any way, shape, or form as a replacement mm -hmm. for um, on-road practice with parents. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Good to know. Since graduated driver licensing programs have been in place, has the nighttime restriction decreased the rate of teen accidents? Absolutely. In fact, let's back up for a second. Mm -hmm. Graduated driver licensing in and of itself, this idea that you go through a learner period where mm -hmm. you have to practice with an adult, then you go through restrictions that, mm -hmm. um, that keep you from the most serious conditions, mm -hmm. that's called the intermediate phase, and then the teen goes to a full license. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is nighttime restrictions during that intermediate phase. Right. And they have reduced crashes by 60%. Wow. So this has been really fabulous. There are lots of reasons for this. Um, most notably, I think, it has to do a lot with the fact that teens at night are maybe not doing the same kind of things they might do during the day. Mm -hmm. They're also right. tired. Um, it's harder to drive at night. There are many, many, many reasons why this is happening, mm -hmm. but it actually has been quite successful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, regardless of whether GDL includes restrictions or not, families can implement them themselves. Right. And we have some things on our website that can help families to create their own GDL. Great. And we'll link to that, too. While we're talking about GDLs, what is the graduated driver licensing system in Pennsylvania? As in all states, Pennsylvania's graduated driver licensing program is in place to ensure licensed teens gradually and safely gain experience in low-risk driving conditions mm -hmm. before they are allowed to have anything. Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania's restrictions include having a learner period mm -hmm. that's um, at least six months long, and it starts at minimum of age 16. Okay. Then you have to go into 65 hours of practice driving with 10 of these hours at night, as you were just talking about, mm -hmm. and five in bad weather. Then you get a junior intermediate license if you mm -hmm. pass the on-road exam, and the restrictions there include no driving between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m., no more than one non-sibling peer passenger for the first six months of independent driving, mm -hmm. unless a parent or guardian is in the vehicle, and no texting while driving. Mm -hmm. There also were Pennsylvania is a secondary seatbelt mm -hmm. um, enforcement state, and for teens in GDL, it's primary. So okay. they have to wear their seatbelts. Okay. Okay. So I think all of this really accounts to the idea that we understand that you go from your lowest risk mm -hmm. lifetime of having a crash when you're a learner to your highest risk, particularly in the first three months, okay. okay, in the first three months of driving. And this is really to address that really high critical time, that first three to six months. Mm -hmm. But in fact, that risk goes on for three years. Mm -hmm. So for three years after you've gotten your license, your risk is much higher than for an adult experienced driver. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in primary care, we 
filling a lot of driver's permit forms. So what should we be talking to our teen patients about when we're signing those forms for them? I'm so glad you asked that because I hear, and I'm sure this isn't common, but I do hear that in some places the families drop the form off Mm -hmm. and it's signed and they go home and there's no conversation. And that is such a missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think we may not realize that we in Pennsylvania have a unique opportunity because we're one of, it's maybe only two states or very few states that actually require medical certification at the time of licensure, at the time of a learner's permit, actually. Mm -hmm. It's a touch point. For anticipatory guidance with a trusted clinician for the family as they're embarking on one of the most dangerous phases of a child's life, of a teen's life. And I really think it's an important opportunity that we shouldn't squander, Mm -hmm. right? right? In other states, New Jersey doesn't require it, but it also could be something that could be part of anticipatory guidance for adolescents. Mm -hmm. So regardless, we should take it seriously. So what are some of the things? So first of all, of course, we should be thinking about this complex task that requires attention, Mm -hmm. and does this teen in front of me have any medical or behavioral problems? So like medical, like untreated seizures, Mm -hmm. behavioral, like, you know, ADHD, other atypical development that may impair the Mm -hmm. teen's ability to drive safely. It may not mean that they should never drive, but it's just something we should be thinking about. And there are very clear guidance about how to handle many of these things. Mm -hmm. And there are wonderful programs for helping those teens learn how to drive Mm -hmm. um, if they need it or how to manage their medical conditions. Mm -hmm. But then once this is there, we should really focus on some of the most important things. So the first is about seatbelt wearing. Mm -hmm. Don't ever forget that. It's Mm -hmm. not all about driving because no matter what, until we have perfect cars and perfect roads, we're going to get in crashes no matter what we do. And the seatbelt is the number one thing that'll save their teen's life and everybody in the car. And what we find in our research in the past, we found that there is this, you know, people in the back seat might not wear the seatbelt, the passenger might not wear it. So all these kinds of things are really important, Mm -hmm. and that should be a requirement. Um, They should not drive while distracted. And Mm -hmm. as parents, you have to think about um, what you're showing in Mm -hmm. terms of this, and you should not drive while distracted because, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the first driver lesson is actually the forward-facing car seat. Let's mm-hmm. just be honest, right. where they're watching you. And so we need to not be distracted, drowsy, under the influence of drugs um, or alcohol. Uh, there should also be no speeding. Mm-hmm. Um, there should, they, should maintain, they should understand safe, safe um, management of speed. So, for example, in, in icy conditions, reduce mm-hmm. the speed, but also right. not speed in school zones. Mm-hmm. Really just understand how to handle intersections. Mm-hmm. If we're in Philadelphia. How do you handle the bicyclists? Right. These are kinds of things that are really important. Right. No cell phone use while driving is also really important, of course, mm-hmm. and a, particularly no texting. Right. Great. Those are some good tips. And like you said, it's an opportunity for us to catch some of our teen patients who are sometimes hard to get in the office anyway. So it's a great time to do anticipatory guidance. That's great. So you mentioned some uh, special populations. So what can physicians do to help parents of teens with ADHD prepare them to become safer drivers? No, I think the most important thing that we all have to remember is that um, driving and driving early, like Mm -hmm. as a teen, Mm -hmm. is a privilege. It's not a right. And in fact, it's the parent's responsibility, because they have to sign the form, Mm -hmm. that their teen is ready. Mm -hmm. So the most important thing we can do is to help parents determine whether their teen is ready to start to learn to drive Mm -hmm. and then whether they're ready to get a license. Those are two separate things. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it might behoove a kid with ADHD 
to have a longer period in the learner period. Right. But it might not be a great idea for them to start driving later mm -hmm. because then they're going to be off at college or things mm -hmm. like that. You won't right. have the time to do it with them. So you can encourage parents to start the conversation early, probably at least a year, if not two, before this. And when the, when, you know, before a teen's ready even for the learner permit. Mm -hmm. So you start the conversation early. And during that time, start to think about how you're going to have good communication skills, problem-solving skills, mm -hmm. what are going to be critical things to do during supervised driving. Maybe, and this is good for all parents, even start doing things like commentary driving, mm -hmm. showing teens what you're doing, trying to really get everybody to recognize mm -hmm. that when you're driving, the task that you're doing is driving. Mm -hmm. That's it, right? right? And what's really important is to really set goals. You might even think about adding them to your child's individualized educational plan mm. and starting to incorporate this with everything else that they're doing because it's yet another skill that they're learning. Mm -hmm. Medications are also important. Families who are um, less inclined to have a child with um, ADHD have medication um, might want to rethink that when it comes to driving. Right. There's some evidence that if the child is well controlled on medication, particularly in the evening hours, mm. you know, so like, you know, that second dose of right. Ritalin or whatever it might be, right. that that can actually help them with their driving. Okay. And that I would really recommend for kids with challenges, medical or otherwise, that you go to a certified rehabilitation specialist or occupational therapist for mm -hmm. driving. And there are places in all cities where mm -hmm. people do this. Typically, people think of doing it after a medical condition in an adult, right. but they are well-versed in how to do it with kids with autism, kids with ADHD or others. Mm -hmm. They can identify strengths and weaknesses, provide training for the teen, but also help the coach the parent on what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And then for those teens who are not ready or able to drive, mm -hmm. let's all recognize that safe, accessible transportation is important for everybody. Right. So for those teens, you might want to teach them about public transit. Mm -hmm. You might want to teach them about um, ride-sharing services, mm -hmm. carpooling, other kinds of things. What's, who is a safe person to take a, a drive with or not? Like, right. don't have your teen then go with a one month, you know, somebody with right. one month of a license. So those are some of the things. But let me just tell you the good news. The good news really happened recently in our um, so in our research. It was um, uh, my colleague Ali Curry mm -hmm. had led a research study to really look at what is the risk for ADHD. Okay. And the great news is in manageable risk. Mm -hmm. It used to be thought it was about the risk of crashing was three or four times higher than mm -hmm. others, right. but there were flaws in those initial studies. Mm -hmm. We now find it's at most like one and a half times higher. Okay. So it's, it's much less of a risk. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I think we all deal with as clinicians, it's a manageable risk. Mm -hmm. So it might take a kid with ADHD a little bit longer to learn to drive, right. but we might be able to still get them there. Great. I like your idea that we can use the similar strategy that we use for them in school in terms of their IEP and extra supports and think about it the same way with driving, that they may just need some extra support to get to the same end goal. Absolutely. Right. So the percentage of teens in high school who drink and drive has decreased um, since 1991, yet studies still say that one in 10 are, are drinking and driving. So what can we do to further decrease this rate? Yeah, that's a real challenge. Um, I think that, you know, as I said before, that any 
impairment at all for mm -hmm. a teen who already is inexperienced and lacks adequate skills to drive safely mm -hmm. will put their risk much higher. So any amount of alcohol, right. not the 0 0.08 or 0 0.05 or any amount of alcohol increases an adolescent's risk of mm -hmm. crashing. So that's just something to understand. It's not right. like they just had a little sip. Right. It doesn't matter. But I really think it starts with the parents. Mm -hmm. um, our research has shown that if parents, if teens view their parents in a, as authoritative, mm -hmm. so supportive, setting rules, mm -hmm. monitoring what they do, being the scapegoat if need be to get them out of a bad situation, right. all of these things will reduce the risk of a child mm -hmm. drinking and driving and also having crashes, like having the crashes over uninvolved parents. Mm -hmm. So I think that really we need to understand, as we do in so many other ways, that we adore our adolescents, but they're still are, you know, developing, mm -hmm. right? right? And these things like alcohol can really impair lots of judgment mm -hmm. and for driving really can be incredibly dangerous. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's really fascinating um, is also if you're driving if you're an adolescent who's driving with someone who's drinking, mm -hmm. is that adolescents may not look like quote unquote sloppy drunks. Mm -hmm. They may not, and the, the other adolescents may not recognize that this person actually is impaired. Mm -hmm. And so not only should you be talking to the adolescent driver, but you should also be talking up to the, the passengers, right. you know, about what this looks like. And in fact, I don't, I don't care about designated driver when it comes to teens as being the only, I, I mean, I care about it, right. but like, do I really want drunk passengers distracting the driver? Distracting the driver? Right. I just think it just driving and alcohol do not work at all right. for adolescents. Right. This is where we talk about code word. Right. This is where the adolescent calls up the parent, mm -hmm. says a code word, and the parent comes and picks them up no mm -hmm. matter what. Okay? You just alcohol, drugs, anything like that in driving just don't mix, whether it's for the driver who's drinking or the passengers. Great. Good tips. Lastly, um, one thing that I see more commonly now is that as our cars are getting smarter, people wonder if these are going to safeguard their teenager against collision. And so a lot of parents are thinking, oh, I'll buy them you know, a fancier, more expensive car that has things like advanced driver assistance systems, including forward collision warnings or lane departure warnings and automated features like automatic emergency braking. So is there any evidence that all of these bells and whistles that we're seeing are now reducing teen crashes? Well, I, I don't know if I can say that there's evidence that they're specifically reducing teen crashes, mm -hmm. but what I do know is that emergency braking systems are important mm -hmm. for everybody, yep. okay? Like mm -hmm. they just, they have a yeah, lot of, they have really make a difference and mm -hmm. that the mistake that a lot of families will make is to buy the clunker cheap old car for their teen, right. which doesn't make any sense, you right. know? A little sheet metal can be fixed, a dead child can't. Right. And so you really want your child to be in the safest mm -hmm. most car you can. With that said, mm -hmm. I'd be a little bit nervous about all the things that are actually warning systems. Mm -hmm. So when you start thinking about, I don't know if you've driven ADAS um, vehicles, but sometimes they're bells, they're yeah. whistles, they're buzzing. Right. And we have a teen who's already distractible right. or doesn't know what to do in these things. Mm -hmm. So at the very least, if you have a vehicle with these ADAS features, mm -hmm. 
Learn what they are. Right. Incorporate it into your practice driving. Mm -hmm. And have them practice it on a parking lot. Mm -hmm. You know, have them see what it feels like to be close or far or right. set the um, alerts to be the safest alerts, whatever it might be. Right. But the reality is it does, as we think about this range of autonomous driving, at this early phase mm -hmm. where um, the, the person still has to implement it, some of those warning systems can mm -hmm. be very distracting. Right. That makes sense. You hear you hear bells and you don't know what they are, and then you're looking around to see what's ringing, and that's distracting in itself. Yes, but a lot of the systems are incredibly important, and mm -hmm. you really should get the safest car for your teen to drive. Mm -hmm. Great. So the Child and Adolescent Reactions to Injury and Trauma Research Program has conducted some studies examining the range of responses that children and their parents experience during pediatric injury recovery. So after a teen driver has been in an accident, how would pediatricians and parents know if the child has any traumatic symptoms that may make returning to driving unsafe for them or, or just stressful for them? I think this is really an important point. Mm -hmm. You know, with as you were saying in, the last, in another question, that as the vehicles get safer and safer, we are surviving crashes, right? right? right. Um, sometimes we're injured, but we're surviving. Mm -hmm. And we often forget that there, even when you're not injured at all, it's a traumatic experience mm -hmm. to be in a crash. Right. And one in eight people, children and their, their parents, mm -hmm. have persistent symptoms that mm -hmm. go on. Like, um, uh, and one that's really important for driving would be the hyperarousal, mm -hmm. being very jumpy and things like that. Okay. So there is actually no evidence about when it's safe to return to driving mm -hmm. because of trauma. Right. Although I think, again, with all of this, you as the clinician with the partner, with the parent and the teen are in the best situation to know whether this is. Mm -hmm. And I would strongly recommend going to a therapist mm -hmm. of some sort, like, right. you know, an occupational therapist or some others. Mm -hmm. So first to get the, it's the therapy for the actual trauma. The trauma but right. then if you do think that there is um, PTSD about getting in the car again, those kind of things, there are people who are trained to do that. Right. And so there are services. Okay. But what I do know is that we have a growing evidence um, and a lot of research going on about what it means after concussion. Because, mm. you know, the number one serious right. injury that happens in car crashes mm -hmm. is actually head injuries. Mm -hmm. And so as we start thinking about concussion, we um, might want to be thinking about, as, as we talked about adding it to the IEP, mm -hmm. so you've got return to sports. Right. We've added that to that return to school and return mm -hmm. to learning right. but maybe there should also be return to driving right. and what does that look like right. and one of the researchers here in our center um, Kate McDonald is really starting to look at that carefully mm -hmm. and it is really quite interesting mm -hmm. that you have some impairments um, that could make it more difficult for you mm -hmm. to drive so I think that the the um, when a family is in a crash mm -hmm. is yet another really good touch point mm -hmm. for seeing the pediatrician right. to be uh, to be looking for re-experiencing symptoms, avoidance symptoms, hyperarousal, mm -hmm. and whether these have gone on for more than a month, if the child's back to normal activities, where that is, and then for the teen to be thinking about it as it relates to school and driving. Mm -hmm. Great. These are all um, um, excellent points that they give us a lot to talk about. And there's obviously much more that we could talk about on this topic, but I want to know a little bit about uh, what the future of teen driving research looks like, what you're working on now, and then we will link to some of the resources that you've given us, but I want to get a taste of kind of what's on the horizon. 
Well, um, I'm so grateful that you've asked me these questions and um, love sharing this. Happy to talk to anybody about teen driving because mm -hmm. it's the leading cause of death for adolescents is right. motor vehicle crashes. So right. till we make a difference on this, we're going to see a lot of adolescents dying. Mm -hmm. uh, what I think is that we need to like look at what's happening in medicine. We're moving beyond universal recommendations and recognizing that there are individual differences, mm -hmm. right? right? So. I call it precision prevention, mm -hmm. and I really do think that that's the future of a lot mm -hmm. that we're going to be doing in general pediatrics, right. but also for teen driving, and it's where my research is going. Right. So what I'm really thinking is the future is to use technology to go beyond um, what we do with graduated driver licensing laws and things like that, which is a great foundation, mm -hmm. to really get at who are the most at-risk drivers? So mm -hmm. if you think about it, and this is a really scary statistic, I think, one in five adolescents at CHOP gets into a motor vehicle crash within the first years of their driving. Wow. We know this because Ali Curry has linked together mm -hmm. New Jersey's data with Epic. So wow. we, know, we know all about all of our, we know this kind of thing, right. so we know about the crashes. One in five, right. okay? So the scary part is it's one in five, mm -hmm. but the good news is it's, Four and five don't, right? Right. So if we spend all of our energy giving things universally, right. then we're not getting the right, we're not triaging to get the right resources right. to the one and five. Right. So that's a lot of where I'm headed is mm -hmm. learning about the one and five mm -hmm. and learning what they need and then thinking about how we can provide it to them at scale. Mm -hmm. Great. I love that you're, you're talking about how individualized it should be because instead of just passing or failing your driving test and t saying, go back and try again you don't know what you're supposed to work on so exactly it's nice to know where your deficit is so you can strengthen that because they may be they may be amazing at certain things like you said maybe they're great at scanning but they're not good at speed control so but they'll never know that unless you tell them those details so. exactly and so that's um if you look on our website and their resources one of the really important resources we have is teen driving plan mm -hmm. which is a practice guide for families mm -hmm. and it can get at if you know that your teen has challenges with scanning or something. It'll give you specific things to look for and mm -hmm. practice and all the rest of that. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm My going pleasure. to link to a lot of the stuff that you mentioned and the resources that your center has on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash PCP podcast. And thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate the work that you do um, for our patients and for the, all the drivers on the road, really. <laughs> well, thank you. And, you know, make sure that every ride is a safe ride. Great, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.